We're going to be in 1 John 3 this morning. You want to look there. While you're doing that, let me mention, I haven't said probably enough about this little devotional booklet, which was prepared by, written by our local pastors in the community who are part of the Bold Faith Initiative. I had the opportunity to edit many of these. Roland Stoy edited some others. Uh, there's one for each day of the campaign and a couple extras that might be helpful to you as you go through the texts and through the month. First John chapter 3, I want to read for us verses 16 down through 24. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought, we're like the English word, but it's even clearer in uh, Greek, ought is literally we owe it to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. As I have tried to make clear during this month of bold faith, your love for God, for other people, can only begin with God's love for you. If you get the sequence wrong, nothing else is going to work right. God's love comes first, then ours. We need to get caught up into the love God has for God. The love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father and that each has for and receives from the Spirit and into the love God has for people. His love makes possible our love for others, even ourselves, in a right and proper way. His love is an endless circuit. It doesn't start with us, it starts with him. It doesn't end with us because it doesn't end at all. But when we open our lives to his love, we become part of the circuit. We don't have to produce love. That's a big problem for people. How can I love this person? We don't have to produce love any more than the lamp in your living room produces electricity. We don't produce love. We get energized by it. So when you find it impossible to love a person, and you might even be that person that you find impossible to love. When you find it impossible to love a person, don't just try harder. Instead, trust God and enter into his love for that person, or rather, allow his love to enter into you. That's what John had in mind when he wrote, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And this is not as the context of that verse shows, merely God's love directed 
to me, but God's love directed through me to the people around me. Now, I've just alluded to the possibility that the person you might have the most trouble loving just could be yourself. Even when that's the case, we need to learn to rely on God's love. People sometimes say things like, well, you just got to love yourself. But that's the wrong way to go about it. And it leads to distortions in our thinking and to negative consequences. It's not that we've got to love ourselves. It's that we've got to open our lives to God's love and trust him to give it. And that second part is key. We must not only know the love of God for us and through us intellectually, we must trust it. And this kind of trust isn't something static that you always have. It's active. We enter into a trust transaction with God. We trust him in an act of bold faith. And so we know and rely on. Where rely on translates the normal Greek word for trust. And so we know and we trust God's love, the love that he has for us. Now look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The original language is something like this. This is how we know the love. There's a definite article there. This is how we know the love, where the love is the love that originates with God, was displayed in Jesus Christ, and is now conducted to us through the Holy Spirit. One translation puts it this way. This is how we know this thing called love. How do we know? We know because of Jesus. He demonstrated this thing called love when he laid down his life, in Greek, his soul, for us. Now, the word translated lay down is used frequently in the New Testament. It has a very broad range of meanings. In its most generic sense, it connotes placing or setting something somewhere. It's used of placing hands on someone. For example, this is the word that's used when Jesus put his hands on little children. It's used of setting a candle on a table, assigning a soldier to a post, settling something in one's mind, laying a foundation for a building, and on and on and on. So when we read it here, we should remember that it doesn't strictly mean to sacrifice one's life so that someone else can live, though we naturally read that meaning into it when we're thinking of Jesus. Nor does it mean to lay something down in the sense of giving it up. As though you could lay down your life and be done with it. Oh, I just wish I could lay down my life and be done with it. That's not it. Even when you lay down your life in the grave, you're not going to be done with it. Just where does the person lay down his life? He lays it right in God's hands. Why does he do it? He does it for the sake of another. That's what the love is. That's what Jesus did. He placed his life in God's hands for our sake, though he knew where that was going to lead. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, this word sometimes used of laying a foundation. When we place our souls in God's hands and at his disposal, we will sometimes think that he's laying us down like a foundation because it seems like everybody is walking on us. But there's an upside to that. 
every time you lay down your soul for another, you become the foundation for some great thing God intends to build that will be a joy and a shelter to others and will redound to God's glory for eternity. But we can refuse to place ourselves in God's hands. We can refuse to lay down our lives. We can forget what God's building and focus all our attention on not getting trampled. John understood that. And so he writes in verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Now, notice the concept that lies behind that statement. John does not think of love for God or the love of God as something static, as if it were something you could put in a vault and collect interest. The love of God It's not still like a lake. It flows like a river. It's active. It's dynamic. So every person who has the love of God in him, the Greek literally is remain in him, everyone who has the love of God in him will have the love of God coming out of him. The love of God will only remain in you if it can get out of you. It's a paradox. But in that way, it's like electricity. Electricity won't go into a person unless he's grounded. That is, unless it can come back out of him. And that's the way it is with God's love. It's ironic, but you can't keep yourself in the love of God, which is what St. Jude tells us to do, unless you stop trying to keep the love of God in you and let it out to others. That's why John asks how a person who has the ability to meet the need of another but refuses to do so can have God's love in him. Because surely if it's in him, it will come out of him. So that leads us to a question that we have to ask. Does John expect us to give to the need of every person we meet until our resources are all gone and other people have to step in and meet our needs? Tough question. Some people, I think, have been called to do just that. Like St. Francis. But I don't think that's what John has in mind. Sometimes meeting a person's immediate need can get in the way of meeting his long-term need. Sometimes meeting a felt need can leave a person stuck in his unfelt but desperately real need. Love can say no and still be love. And sometimes it ought to say no. But if that's the case, isn't it easy to justify selfishness? All I have to do to justify my selfishness is say, I'm not going to help you because I don't think it's in your best interest. How can we distinguish between loving wisdom and a kind of hoarding selfishness? I think the answer is we can't. Not when it comes to someone else. And we shouldn't even try. We're not qualified to judge other people's motives. And if we think we are, We're just fooling ourselves. But there may be a test for judging our own motives. If we decide not to give to meet a person's need, somebody comes to us, here's my need, and we think about it and say, I'm not going to give. Whether It doesn't matter whether it's money or time or energy. We say, I'm not going to do that. We should look to see if our refusal decreases 
our compassion for that person. A literal translation of the Greek here is something like this. If anyone has the life of the world and sees his brother having a need and shuts his compassion for him off, how does the love of God remain in him? If we can only say no to a need by shutting off our compassion, we better not say no. If we shut the door, and that's how that verb is used in secular Greek all the time. If we shut the door on our compassion for that person, something's wrong. Now, we can decline to give without shutting the door of our hearts. In fact, we can be opening the door of our hearts wider and wider at the very same time we're declining to meet a particular need. But if we sense that our concern and compassion for that person has left us, as if we're shutting it off, then something's out of place. In this verse, the NIVs, if anyone has material possessions, translates an interesting phrase, which in Greek is, if anyone has the life of the world, where life is bios in Greek, from which we get our words biology, biography, and others. John sees material possessions as a kind of life that the world cares about. Our world lives for stuff. Money is its lifeblood. But our lifeblood comes from a very different source. One that is not prone to clotting. John knew that it's easy to justify indifference. He knew that people hide selfishness behind words that sound caring, but aren't. And so he says in verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now when John says, let us not love with words or tongue, it looks as if he means us to keep our mouths shut and let our actions do our talking for us. But I don't think he's opposed to saying loving things. For one thing, he does it all the time, more than any other writer in the New Testament. He just doesn't want us saying loving things unless we're ready to back them up with loving deeds. Some people issue words of love the way a swindler issues bad checks. I mean, have you been around them? Loving words come out of them all the time, but there's nothing in the account to back them up. When that's the case, John insists we keep our mouths shut Talking love that isn't there is spiritually injurious to others, yes, but especially to ourselves. It results in the spread of hypocrisy, and that shrivels the soul. If you ever listen to the show on National Public Radio, This American Life, they also have a video version of it. This American Life presented the story of a prize-winning photographer a while back. During the interview, he confessed that he and his fellow photojournalists sometimes distanced themselves intentionally from the misfortunes of others. They shut the door of compassion in their hearts. He told about a life-threatening incident in which he opted to continue taking pictures rather than get involved. He said he was assigned to get pictures of a coastal storm, so he went to Plum Island, I think the one off Massachusetts. And he walked along the beach taking pictures of the surf. And he saw a woman standing alone right on the edge of the shore, the waves crashing in front of her, 
And he remembers she was holding a bottle of beer in her hands. He took a picture of her, and then a split second later, a wave came crashing in, and the bank below her feet just shattered, and she went sliding down into the water. And he kept snapping photos. And the second one, he got a picture of her, which was a great picture of her lying in shallow water after the wave had receded. He told the interviewer, I was probably 50 feet away from her. Now, 50 feet is probably from there to that wall. So it's fairly close. He, I was probably 50 feet away from her shooting with a telephoto lens. She was in the water, either in shock or drunk or whatever. I thought about, okay, am I going to make a rescue? I already got the shot I need. Instead, he took more pictures as he saw two men racing to help her. His picture showed the men getting close to her and she lying in the water, stretched out her hands to them. He turned and he saw a lifeguard coming from a distance. And so he took pictures of him. And just as one of the men was ready to grab her and pull her to safety, he got a picture of a giant wave crashing over them. The next photo shows the men retreating and the huge wave coming down on this helpless woman. When the wave receded, she was gone. The photographer watched someone drown through the lens of his camera, and he never stopped taking pictures. And as the interview went on, he admitted that he could have saved her. But he chose to take pictures instead. Now, clearly the woman suffered because the photographer chose not to help her. But here's what I want us to get. He suffered too. See, after that day, his soul was never the same. He was less than he had been. Shutting your heart against someone it's like shutting the sluice gate on a dam. Your soul floods, grace erodes, and debris washes up. And after that, you'll never be quite the same again. Look at verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Have you had the experience of being condemned by your own heart? I'm sure you have. The Greek word translated as condemned is comprised of two roots. One meaning to know and the other meaning against. To know something against a person. Our hearts know things about us. Things that could be used against us. The bad attitudes, the censoriousness and greed, the pride, the temptations, and the deep hidden desire to give in to those temptations, the anger, the apathy, the list of offenses could go on and on and on. And the prosecutor is our own heart. Our heart opposes us. That's the way the word's used in its only translation outside John. When our hearts condemn us, bad things happen. We find we have trouble believing God. We can't believe that he loves us. Can't believe that he'll act on our behalf when we're in trouble. And when that happens, when our belief begins to erode, we pray less. We allow ourselves, yet another offense our heart condemns, to be distracted, to wander from God. We lose the sense that we belong to him, lose the assurance of our salvation. It's a downward spiral. When we stop going to God because we know our hearts will condemn us, is there a way to set our hearts at rest? A way to persuade our hearts 
that God will not turn us away? Can we stop the spiral? There is a way, John says, and it's to love with actions and in truth. Verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. There is something we can do. We can open our hearts, not to let God's love in, but to let it out. As God's love is expressed through us, our heart undergoes a wonderful transformation. It's set at rest, persuaded that God, who is greater than our hearts, is with us and for us. Now, I want us to see what this means. If we close our hearts to someone, family member, former friend, an enemy, a coworker, an employer, whoever it might be, we will eventually feel that God has closed his heart to us. That's how it works. I think that's happened to some people who have gone on to reject the faith. If I refuse to let God's love flow through me to a person in need of my forgiveness, I'll find myself feeling unforgiven. If I refuse to open my heart and let God's love flow through me to someone in need, I'll have no confidence that God's going to meet my need. If I won't let God's love flow through me to show compassion to a person who's hurting, I'll feel uncared for when I'm hurting. I'm not talking about salvation by works. This is not about salvation at all, though it has a bearing on one's assurance of salvation. This is about having confidence with God. But look at what happens. Look at the upward spiral that takes place when we do open our hearts and let God's love be expressed through us. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. When we love in actions and truth, okay, that was the beginning of this, our hearts do not condemn us. We set them at rest. When our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. When we have confidence before God, we start seeing answers to our prayer requests, which of course increases our confidence in God all the more, and our spiritual lives begin an upward spiral. So I want to wrap this up by getting very practical and asking a simple question. Is there someone in your circle of acquaintances, relationships, to whom you've closed your heart? Perhaps you closed your heart because you thought that person was undeserving. And you're probably right. Or perhaps it was because you were afraid of being used. Or perhaps it was because that person hurt you and you didn't want to hurt again. The thought of opening your heart to that person at this point is scary. You're not sure you can do it. After all that's happened, after all the pain you felt, all the pain you've given, how could you ever generate love for that person again? The answer is, you can't. But then you never could. Humans are not love generators. It's not in their power. Remember the lamp. It doesn't generate electricity, and it doesn't have to. 
but it does conduct it. You can't generate love, but you can conduct it. In fact, that's what you were made to do. And you don't conduct that love to a person in the form of forgiveness or compassion or in any other way just by trying harder. Oh, I've got to try to love that person even though I can't stand him. You do it by trusting fully. Remember, true love, the love, as John puts it, requires bold faith. What I'm asking you to do is not so much a test of your love for people. You always fail when you go about it that way. But of your trust in God. Has the Spirit brought someone to mind? Maybe an entire group of people to mind. As I've been speaking, you know that you've closed your heart and you know God wants you to open it again and let his love flow through you. Will you do it? You don't have to feel a certain way towards that person. You don't have to feel anything at all. What you have to do is trust God, say yes to him, and be responsive to his leading. You can love that person with the love of God and begin the upward spiral today. So if God's spoken to you, say yes and open your heart. Let's pray. Lord, you know why we don't love. And it's usually because we're afraid. But perfect love casts out fear. So come, you who are perfect love, and cast out our fears. We give ourselves to you in the name of your Son. Jesus. Amen.